Thanks for joining us today on Mormonland, where we explore news in and about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm Senior Managing Editor Dave Noyce. I oversee the Solid Tribune's faith coverage. I'm joined by Senior Religion Reporter Peggy Fletcher-Stack. Hello, Peggy. Hi, Dave. We remind you about another way to support Mormonland. Just go to patreon.com, where with a donation as small as $3 a month, you can access transcripts to our podcast, our complete newsletter, and all of our exclusive religion coverage. Again, that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Mormonland. Now for today's show. With the death of senior apostle M. Russell Ballard and the recent injury and illnesses of Church President Russell Nelson and Apostle Jeffrey Holland, focus has once again fallen on the top men who lead the 17 million member Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Years, even decades of policy, practice, and precedent have established how the hierarchy is ordered. A governing first presidency, usually made up of the faith's president and two counselors at the top, followed by the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, the presidency of the Seventy, and General Authority Seventies. But with all the members of the first presidency in their 90s and increasingly aged apostles, questions are reemerging about a gerontocracy, these men who must serve for life, charged with guiding a global religion. And what about the general women's leaders? Does their service, captive five years, prevent them from having more influence in the church? Here to discuss those questions and more is historian Matthew Bowman, Howard W. Hunter, Chair of Mormon Studies at Claremont Graduate University. He joins us today via Zoom. Matt, welcome. Thank you so much. Okay, so let me just ask a general question. As you as a historian, um, when you heard about M. Russell Ballard's death, where did your mind first go? Oh, well, of course, you know, the first thing you do when you hear about a death is is to mourn, to think about his family, um, to those who love him. And, and so certainly that. Um, but also, you know, I think beyond that, um, how high the ages of these general authorities have gone. Of course, he was 95 years old. As you mentioned, the entire first presidency of the church right now is in their 90s. It is the first time that has happened. Um, this is a sign of really of improved medical technology, the fact that people in the Western world are living longer and longer and longer. Um, but also, I think, of uh, um, necessary adaptations um, that have already happened in the church and will probably continue to happen. Um, we've seen, of course, over the past several years um, from leaders of the church, from um, Thomas Monston, um, to most recently, Jeffrey Holland, right? People who are suffering infirmities and sickness and, and have to step back from their responsibilities for a while. Um, there have been ad hoc systems of grappling with this that have developed over the years. Um, but it does make me wonder if this is something um, that church leaders will be thinking about more seriously in the future. Hmm. Well, because the next general conference is nearly five months away, most people expect a new apostle to be named before then. Is, is that what you think? I think likely. Um, there's certainly precedent for that. Um, the example that sprang to my mind first was that of Jeffrey Holland. Um, Ezra Taft Benson, um, who was president of the church, died in May of 1994. First presidency was reorganized very quickly, and a new apostle was called, and that being Holland in June, uh, months before the next general conference. Um, I think with the workload um, that these uh, leaders are under these days, um, it makes sense to replace um, him as quickly as possible. So it's the longest time between the death of an apostle and filling the vacancies. Seems like there's been some long gaps. 
Oh, uh, well, um, it's been really scattershot um, in the past. And certainly, as we've seen the system regularize, uh, those spaces have gone, you know, smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, you know, <laughs> the first thing that occurs to me um, is the fact that um, after Joseph Smith died and several uh, members of the Quorum of the Twelve um, joined other Mormon movements, not the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, it took Brigham Young four years um, to fill mm-hmm. some of those gaps. And the, the Quorum of the Twelve wasn't really reconstituted until 1849. Um, now that, you know, it's been quite scattershot in the, in the early days um, when um, these sorts of things were done in a, in a more kind of geriatric matter. But over the 20th century, the gaps have gotten tighter and tighter. And it's usually now um, never more than two or three months um, before a replacement is called. I seem to recall a, a long gap before um, Elders Oaks and Nelson were put in. Do you know how long that was, Matt? I don't off the top of my head, but yes, that does ring a bell to me as well. And actually, I think that's a sign of something I mentioned earlier. Um, that being right, um, well, the, the, the infirmities of age catching up with people, right? By the t- by, the time of his um, well, by the time of his death, of course, uh, Spencer W. Kimball, who was president of church by that point, was not, not terribly functional. Um, of course, he's replaced by Ezra Taft Benson. Um, and who then calls um, a first presidency. Um, but then Benson himself eventually, of course, succumbs to infirmity in the last few years of his presidency. He's not terribly functional as well. Um, so, yeah, this, uh, these kinds of things can slow down the work. Is, is that, be- I mean, obviously that's because the ultimate decider is the president, right? Mm, and if the correct. president is incapacitated, the counselors can't really just go around him, at least according to church tradition. Uh, certainly, right. And then these are, you know, there, there are certainly procedures here that that um, mostly members of the church are not familiar with, right? But but yeah, the ultimate responsibility for calling a new apostle um, rests in the hands of the church president. And um, I would imagine counselors would be quite reluctant um, to assume that responsibility on their own. So why do you think choosing an apostle can be tricky. I mean, I've I've got opinions about that, but (laughs) what do you think? (laughs) Well, and and, we should say all this, right, um, with the caveat um, that that for believers, right, the ultimate um, person who's making this decision is God, um, right? And and there is inspiration involved in this. It's not simply a matter of looking at resumes and and interviewing and that sort of thing. Um, but I think um, the job of the apostle, right, has gotten increasingly complicated and increasingly difficult over time. And, and you know, I think we'll probably talk um, in a bit about some of the adaptations to the hierarchy of the church to try to lessen some of that burden, um, to be sure. But nonetheless, right, over the last 50 or 60 years, um, apostles are taking on more and more administrative responsibilities. Um, they are increasingly um, functioning in you know, a position analogous to that of a CEO um, of uh, boards of trustees for major universities or corporations. But in addition to that, right, um, their job also involves pastoral work as well. They are um, they are pastors in a sense, people who are supposed to minister um, to followers and to serve in kind of comforting and caring capacity, as well as an administrative capacity 
um, capacity. And then on top of that, they are also dealing not simply, I think, um, with cultures and societies where you know all of the, all the current apostles, right, are are from developed countries. Uh, most are from North America. Um, they are dealing with an increasingly global church with cultures and societies that many of them are not familiar with. Um, and they want to do the best they can with that. So that's placing even more weight on their shoulders of things they have to do. Um, so finding somebody um, with the capacity to grapple with a lot of these problems and issues um, is difficult, to say the least. Yeah, it seems, Matt, this may be a bad comparison. I don't know. But choosing an apostle is one of the bigger responsibilities, I would think, on a president of the church. It, it's sort of akin to a U.S. president choosing a Supreme Court justice. It's sort of a way that you can extend a legacy, I guess, uh, mm-hmm. an imprint. Um, for instance, you mentioned Howard Hunter was only president of the church for like nine months. But his apostle choice, Jeffrey Holland, has had influence way beyond that, right? Is that is that sort of a fair comparison? Yeah, absolutely. I would say perhaps even also a vice president, right? Because of course, every apostle chosen may at some point become president of the church mm-hmm. as well. Um, so yeah, um, certainly, right? These uh, these impacts last quite a long time, often after the life of the president and the church who chooses. Yeah. Also, so, I think it makes it complicated is that it's a lifetime calling. So if they're looking for a younger man to, and they're all men, of course, need to remind our listeners, they're all men. Um, You choose a younger man, you don't necessarily know how that person is going to play out for the next 50 years. But if you choose someone who's older and more well-known, then that person won't have as long. It's not like you can fire anyone, right? If you make a mistake with these, even even the Supreme Court justices can retire, but this is a no exit calling. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that makes it really important. Yeah, not to make yeah. a mistake. Is that you know, why? Uh, sorry, man. I was going to ask kind of along that same line, but is, is that why the ages we're seeing kind of? I mean, in the earlier days, the apostles were called were quite young. Now it seems like young now is 50s, 60s. Is is that sort of been the trend? I mean, will we see another like 36-year-old Tom Monson called? That kind of a thing. Perhaps, <laughs> yeah. Um, but we don't know, right? But uh, but yeah, no. That that's that's accurate to say. And and uh, that their ages at at the call um, are tracking older and older. And I think that reflects a lot of things, right? As you mentioned, right? Joseph Smith called people in their twenties and thirties. Um, Orson Pratt was twenty four when he became an apostle. But also, Orson Pratt died at age seventy. Uh, Brigham Young died at age 77. Um, Increasingly, I think, with um, the increased lifespan in the Western world, um, but also the shifting patterns of the church itself and the shifting patterns of the responsibility of apostles, uh, ages have gotten later and later and later. Um, Harold Bewey was 42 when he became an apostle and was somewhat young at that point. Now they tend to come, as you say, in their 50s and 60s and just sort of 30 years or so. The process has been regularized 
um, there is increasingly something similar to what we what was called the cursus honorum in ancient Rome. That is, you move up from office to office to office, and eventually in ancient Rome, you would become the consul, right? One of the chief administrative officers of the Roman Republic. Similarly, in the church today, um, apostles tend to have progressed through local leadership um, into the lower ranks of what are called the general authorities up to finally the apostleship itself. And so it takes a bit longer. More and more apostles are state presidents first, then 70s, or presidents of auxiliaries. Um, and it's becoming increasingly rare, right, that people skip rungs or vault, right, right from local leadership to general authority status. Um, of the current quorum of the 12, right, virtually all of them were 70s at one point. So President Nelson had... Two previous picks for Apostle Garrett Gong, Ulysses Soares, they were both historic. One was the first Asian American, one was the first Latin American Apostle. Some speculate, there's speculation about a Black Apostle being named. Uh, obviously, we, like you say, we don't know. Uh, no one knows what's going to happen on that. Do you, but do you expect to see further diversi diversification among these top lifetime leaders? Um, I think that's inevitable over time because uh, the number of church members who are white and from the global north is declining relative to the number of those who are not white and are from the global south, particularly African and Latin American. Um, it may take a long time, right? One of the, the fascinating things about this is that uh, because, as Peggy said, this is all a lifetime job, right? Turnover is slow. Mm -hmm. um, but I think eventually, yeah, that will be inevitable. Uh, okay, so a little put your historian's hat on. Why did the church discontinue the assistant apostle position? Was that, I heard talk that Marion Hanks was actually put in, in as an assistant apostle before Howard Hunter was made an apostle. Mm -hmm. If If that trajectory had happened, Marion Hanks would have been the president before. Mm -hmm. Why did they discontinue that? Yeah, yeah. so these, the, the, uh, the official title of this position was assistant to the Quorum of the Twelve. Um, and a lot of people, um, there were, I think, three, four dozen of these over 30 years or so. L. Tom Perry was one. Boyd K. Packer was one. David Haight was one. Right, A lot of people who eventually became apostles begin is in this position. Um, it was created, and this job was created by Heber J. Grant in the 1940s um, because the church was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And it was increasingly difficult for members of the Quorum of the Twelve to perform all the administrative responsibilities they were accustomed to do, that being uh, managing missions, um, going to missions all over the world um, to ensure that things were being done um, according to procedure there. Organize stakes, preside at state conferences, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, these people were not, this is not a distinct office, right? It is not something you were ordained to be, uh, you were set apart. Um, and it lasted until the 1970s when my guess is leaders of the church came to feel that this kind of ad hoc attempt to broaden the reach of the apostles by making assistance to them um, simply had to be institutionalized and formalized. 
um, and become a layer of the hierarchy on its own rather than an extension of the Quorum of the Twelve. And so in 1976, under uh, Spencer W. Kimball, um, we see the creation of General Authority 70s. Um, as they are called now. That is the elevation of the office in the Melchizedek priesthood called 70, um, which is like high priests, um, like elders in Melchizedek office, be elevated eventually to general authority status. And these people then, general authority 70s, take on that space between the Quorum of the Twelve in Salt Lake City and stake presidents at the local level as those who facilitate interaction between these two, the local level and the general level. But so, okay, first two questions for that. One is some of those men you mentioned became apostles. Mm -hmm. Some didn't. Was it just, again, like treated like the farm team and some... Some needed yeah, to that, that appears to be the case, right? That these people, okay. um, they were working with apostles. They were close to apostles. The apostles knew them. And of mm-hmm. course, particularly, you know, <laughs> this is still true today, right? But especially in the early 20th century, in the 19th century, um, being familiar to the general authorities was a good way to become a general authority. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So my second question about that is, uh, I seem to recall that the first quorum of 70, uh, used to be also a lifetime calling. True? Yeah. So th- this gets extremely When did complicated. that stop? Yeah, I mean, I yeah. think that happened in our lifetime, at least mine. Yes, this gets extremely complicated. Um, so <laughs> as I say, right, the 70 is a distinct priesthood office in the Melchizedek priesthood, comparable to elder and high priest. Um, when Joseph Smith first created this office, there were seven presidents of the 70 who were considered general authorities. Uh, but those were the presidents of the 70. Everybody who was a 70 was not a general authority. There were, of course, quorums of 70s in stakes. Um, yeah. There were groups of 70s meeting in wards and so on and so forth. Um, in 1976, Kimball reorganizes those seven presidents of the 70 who were then called the the uh, the first council of the 70 into general authorities and he expands them beyond simply seven this first quorum of the 70 then becomes general authorities about 10 years later he adds to that number um, and creates the seven the second quorum of the 70 those people were temporary callings um like doing essentially what the former um assistants of the 12 did um in 1995, Gordon B. Hinckley creates Area 70s, which are temporary 70s, um, people who serve for five years or so. Um, we also see then um, an age limit put onto all general authority 70s. That is, at age 70, you become an emeritus general authority. Um, the first and second quorum are technically permanent then until age 70. Those people, though, are now called general authority 70s, not first and second quorum. Um, the other 70s, the area 70s, generally serve three, five, six years, somewhere in there. Um, so they are not made emeritus when they when they turn 70. Matt, what's the advantage of emeritus uh, uh for, for them, I'm, I, one, I would kind of, we sort of already talked to you, you can cycle through more people that way, I guess, right? Uh, and mm-hmm. it doesn't require a lifetime commitment from everybody. But 
Um, what what are what are some advantages besides that? Maybe yeah. So um, these people, right? Particularly like area seventies and the kind of lower the lower rungs of general authorities often do have um, other careers that they are called into, and they're not necessarily on this the same um, leadership track that eventually the twelve are on. They sometimes have jobs that they want to return to. It's also, I think, significant that this job, this sort of reorganization of the 70 and the way that has happened over the past 50 years, making them to some degree general authorities, is in some ways a bureaucratic reform rather than a kind of a something deeply rooted in the theology and original organization of the church under Joseph Smith. The Quorum of the Twelve Apostles is like that. The First Presidency is like that. The Seventy are described in the Doctrine and Covenants and were treated in the lifetime of Joseph Smith um, as an office more comparable to elder or high priest than to an apostle. Thus, I think, um, and this is, of course, my speculation, I I think that general authorities are more comfortable um, creating an emeritus status for 70s than they are for the apostles or the first presidency. These are offices that can be kind of reformed, altered, manipulated a little bit um, in a way that doing so with the Quorum of the Twelve or the first presidency, um, we don't really, they don't really feel like they have the scriptural or revelatory warrant to do it. I was just going to ask you about that, of course, because that's a question that always comes up, especially as you see, as you see, like you talk about aging and, you know, and you know, thank heavens for modern medicine that's allowing people to live longer and function longer. But the question always becomes, will we ever see emeritus status? Is there something that blocks that from happening? Is it mainly practice and tradition? Or is, like you just mentioned, scriptures or some scriptural yeah. connection? There is. So we'll put it this way. There's nothing in scripture that explicitly authorizes emeritus status for okay. these figures. Um, so it's partly a question of that, but also I think partly a question of um, precedent. And there's simply no precedent for it either. Um, and given those two things, I think the combination of those two factors um, makes current apostles and the first presidency feel very, very uncomfortable with that possibility. And so we've seen, I think, um, various... Um, I don't want to say workarounds, but um, because that's not really the right word. But I think um, what I think if you were to ask them, what they would say is um, there is contingency for that built into the system. Um, of course, it's not simply a president of the church; it's the president of the church and two counselors who have, in the past, right, and as we've seen with a number of presidents of the church who become incapacitated, the counselors step up and assume much of that responsibility. And extra counselors sometimes, come. and sometimes extra counselors, as with David O. McKay, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I mean, in fact, you know, tying this back to uh, to President Ballard, right? Ballard um, wrote a, a book about this and I think has not gotten maybe sufficient attention in the church about councils, right? And arguing that um, in, from his perspective, one of the geniuses of church organization was that it's never just a single person. It is always a council and it's always a group um, who might be able to pick up the slack if any single person becomes unable to serve. So besides, and we talked a little bit about this already, but besides President Nelson and Oaks, in, in recent times, how many apostles have come from outside this hierarchy that 
Quorum of the Seventy yeah. or the Presiding Bishop, Rick. I mean, what's the, what's more recent ones yeah. other than that? Yeah, so that depends, I think, on um, how you define the hierarchy, um, right? And if it includes auxiliaries. Of course, President Nelson was a general Sunday school president um, for a while before he became apostle, um, just as you know, someone like Gary Stevenson was in the presiding bishopric. Um, but we might go, I think, and, and again, right, because these people are so long-lived, um, if we go back into the 50s and 60s, um, we can find examples of this. Thomas Monson, for instance, was a mission president. That was the highest office he held um, in the church before becoming an apostle. Gordon B. Hinckley was an assistant to the Twelve um, before entering that, but he was not a 70 because General Authority 70s did not exist at that point. Um, in recent years, though, I think it has become increasingly common um, for these people to either be um, in a, either be a General Authority 70 or be in a, one of the auxiliary leaderships, that, um, not being the bishopric, the Sunday school presidency, something like that. Um, perhaps I think the best recent example is David Bednar, who was an Area 70. Um, that is one of the lower rungs of the 70 mm-hmm. before vaulting up to the apostleship. And had been head of BYU-Idaho. BYU-Idaho, right, yes. Right. Okay. That was Gordon Hinckley picking. He's the one who kind of orchestrated the Oaks and Nelson and Bednar. He liked those education guys and those yeah. <laughs> accomplished men. Okay, let's move on to women. Previous General Relief Society presidents served, well, you know, historically, almost as long as some of the apostles, sometimes longer. Uh, but in the 1990s, it became routine for them to serve for only five years. What do you think prompted that change? I think um, you have to go back initially to Emmeline B. Wells. Um, Emmeline B. Wells became the first General Relief Society president, other than Emma Smith, who, of course, um, stopped being General Relief Society president because the church fell apart after the death of her husband. Um, Emmeline Wells becomes the first General Relief Society president to be removed in her lifetime in 1921. Um, now, it is only a month or so before her death that she is removed, and she is removed for reasons of ill health um, by Heber J. Grant. And after that happens, it then becomes routine for the rest of the 20th century um, for Relief Society presidents to not serve for life. Wells is followed by uh, Clarissa Williams, Louise Robinson, um, then eventually um, Bell Spafford, Barbara Smith, right? All of these people, some serve for a very long time. Bell Spafford serves for nearly 30 years, um, but all of them cease being really steady president before they die. Um, and gradually, after Bell Spafford, who serves from 1945 to 1974, the term is shortened. Um, so Barbara Smith, who replaces Bill Spofford, serves for 10 years. Um, then you get down to six and seven years. Elaine Jack uh, serves from 1990 to 1997. And then following that, it's been five years steady. So you have then first that precedent of uh, Wells being removed. Then I think what happens in the 1970s is the correlation movement, which begins to centralize authority in the church in the priesthood councils. 
Um, and you see then after that, not simply the Relief Society, but the other auxiliaries as well, the General Sunday School presidencies, um, the General Youth presidencies, right? All the presidencies of all of these offices, um, tenure starts to shrink. And they start to shrink, I think, in part to prevent these auxiliaries from developing as power bases of their own. Um, separate from the direction and the leadership of the centralized priesthood councils. So that, in a nutshell, is how I would tell that story. Well, do you think that the five-year limit for general women's officers prevents them, the women, from having longer and more lasting influence the same way Mm -hmm. as an apostle would? Certainly. And I think think that's in part by design. Uh, Right. I think... uh, the the notion right of these auxiliary presidencies right kind of shaping um the auxiliaries in their own images putting really deep stamps on them um in a sense independent from priesthood hierarchy i think is something that has um become suspect and um is not approved in the post correlation era um so all the auxiliaries i think are serving much more kind of as administrators rather than kind of transformative visionary leaders in their own right so Matt, as as members watch uh, and see, you know, like who the who the next apostle is, whenever that happens, what what would you tell members to keep their eye on as as new leaderships are announced and things like that and changes come? You know, they- yeah, and this is something I think we have seen um, in the seventies, which you know, are not um, usually as visible as apostles are, but increasingly, 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 these are. These are people in large numbers from outside the United States. Um, And that wave is coming. It is moving up the 70s um, now. And I think, um, as we spoke about earlier, eventually we will see um, that wave hit the apostleship. Uh, It's already started, I think. I I would not be shocked if in 15, 20, 30 years, right, a majority of the Quorum of the Twelve are not American. Um, That, I think, is the biggest um, transformation coming. It's one I think that is sometimes off the radar of a lot of American members of the church, um, but it will mark, I think, not only the makeup of the general authorities of the church, but also increasingly the decisions that are made and the way um, the church is oriented. Many of the changes we've seen over the past 10 or 20 years, I think, have been directed at managing a global church, um, changes that might seem kind of confusing to Americans. Um, but that will only continue. Matthew Bowman, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Be well, okay? You too. Thanks to Peggy Fletcher Stack. Always a pleasure. And to our producer, Christopher Samuels, we remind you that you can keep up on all the happenings in and about the church by subscribing to the Salt Lake Tribune's free Mormon Land newsletter. Just go to sltrib.com to sign up. And we'll talk again next time on Mormon Land. <laughs>